next speaker is uh, Steve Taylor from the ACT Parks and Conservation Service. Um, Steve uh, has a long history um, in uh, natural resources. Uh, um, prior to being weeds officer, he was arranged in the ACT for some years. Uh, he, was, he started out um, in the early days of environmental bush regeneration in the, uh, in the early 80s, mid 80s. Um, and he has a passion for conservation, native uh, 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 vegetation and biodiversity. Um, and uh, I think you started out in Sydney originally. But you escaped. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, thank you. Over to Steve. Try and, I'm going to try and draw in some lessons we learned from the previous speakers because I, um, I think I can with what I've put here. Um, so I just thought I'd start with some um, definitions um, for what are weeds. Yeah, a grain we're not wanted. But what the focus of this talk on is about environmental weeds that suppress native vegetation. Um, there's other sorts of weeds, weeds of primary production, weeds of disturbed areas, um, weeds of forestry, and so on and so forth. So what I'm talking about is um, the ones that, that affect biodiversity, and in the literature they're sometimes called invasive plants. If you look at the American literature for invasive weeds, well, it's the primary weeds. Um, yes, the government invests a fair amount of money um, for the size of the ACT in trying to reduce the impact and spread of environmental weeds, as you can see on the slide. Um, about half for our existing reserve system, which is the Nature Reserves and National Park. And then the new offsets areas, which are a much smaller area, and that actually takes up an equal amount of money, which it's interesting because that shows you that a lot of the offsets areas are areas that haven't been managed for weeds appropriately over the years, so weed problems become worse. And that shows you how costly it is if you don't act and have ongoing management of your land. Okay, just looking at reasons for plant invasion and how climate change will interact with that. Um, so there's quite a lot of literature out there um, on different aspects of climate change affecting um, both native and exotic plants. Um, so there's interesting research done on carbon dioxide fertilisation and indications that uh, vine type species will benefit more than others from that. Um, so that will improve the competitive ability of some of our existing weed species like English ivy, blackberry, and some of the emerging ones which used to be thought of as only more north of here or more coastal species such as Midria vine, vine. There's, um, I guess, what Alison was referring to in her talk about this tendency to want to always bring in something else because things aren't working. So we're getting rapid climate change, things aren't working, we've got to bring in something else. And that's you know, the idea of bringing in hardier plants from somewhere else, usually overseas. And that'll lead to, um, I guess, this more a new form of profitable pressure on our native plant communities because some of those plants will become invasive. Then there's our native plant communities itself and how they can be affected by climate change. Um, resource availability, 
as we know, nature hates a vacuum. Um, if drought stress creates uh, more intertussic spaces in our grasslands, it will be invasive species that fill that first. Um, and that's, that's something we need to deal with. And there's also what they call facilitation, which is could there be changes in complex things happening with animals that, or other plants that might facilitate um, the spread of invasive species. So there's lots of interesting research in there. Um, will invasive grasses be the main climate change beneficiary? I mean, this is an example of African lovegrass monoculture right next to an urban nature reserve. And the reasons the climate change might benefit that species. As humans, we do lots of things which help these plants along too, such as mowing um, invasive grasses when they're in sea, great way to spread it. Um, one thing I've looked at in the literature and at, a, at the recent weeks conferences I've attended, there's been a lot of talk about um, our high country and the mountain areas being the areas that could be most severely affected by climate change. And there's indications that this is the case because in the past these have been a bit less disturbed. There's been um, what they call abiotic barriers, the extreme climate, which has protected them from plantation. But the indications are in our research that this is going to be different. We're going to get niches opening up, which will allow plant invasions and also movements of native species. Um, a more specific study, um, some of you may have some of the authors, some of the people they looked at our high country, so Namaji, Victorian Alpine Parks, Kosciuszko, Greenville National Park, and they indicated that these species just there are high priority for control because either they're going to have increased habitat suitability with climate change, um, or they're going to be better able to take advantage of climate change than native species. So as land managers, we need to think about if we've got infestations of those species, maybe they should be our absolute priority in getting them out of the high country. And for those who want to look at this a bit more, um, Paul Downey and a number of colleagues from both from um, University of Canberra and also Macquarie University have, um, have a very interesting website on wind features and you can look at different species and see what habitat suitability changes there might be under climate change scenarios. And those are some of the species that popped up for our region as having more habitat suitability. Um, so one, one in particular that um, my colleague, Jenny Connolly, who's here, has been working on is controlling Mexican pepper grass, which is some stellar closely related to serenitas. And um, we've got a program of eradication of those species. So we're trying to use as much of this information as we can to be better adapted to um, change the function. And these are some of the tools we try to use to get information, everything from fantastic texts like Weeds of Southeast, um, advice from research botanists and ecologists, databases, um, and then our own field data collecting tools, such as the Collector App and Canberra Nature Map, for getting quick information from the ground on species distribution and new infestations. And that all feeds into a risk assessment matrix which helps us make decisions on 
where we should put our limited resources, balancing rigorous against feasibility of control. And we're going to have to review this because you're going to see in a few slides some interesting things that we've been observing. And one of the previous speakers mentioned we're already seeing change in the environment, and, and we are actually seeing this in plant movements in the ACT region. No one would ever have thought Hudson Care, a western, northwestern New South Wales weed species, could establish in the ACT, but we recently had to control the infestation of that. Um, is it the question you ask, is this just a casual infestation? Is it fully naturalised? Is it going to become an early invader? Certainly, I managed to stick my fingers together when I was removing them. <laughs> and, and that actually is it's a really nasty plant. A lot of animals die when they, they get it on their paws and they put their paws in and out. This is one that um, I never thought would become a weed species. Um, the Spanish lavender, top lavender, as opposed to French lavender. Um, increasing reports of infestations on Canberra Nature Map and from uh, our staff in the field mapping um, white grout map infestations. I've already mentioned Mexican feathergrass, so that showed up in uh, Professor Dowdy's weed futures model. It's been a species to um, be concerned about for the future, so we're putting a lot of effort into um, eradication. We've got about um, five or six sites. As you can see, Spanish heat, already known to be a bad environmental weed in parts of Victoria. Um, for reasons I don't know, it's um, always associated with, with um, areas with different climates to ACT, but we've had to deal with some rapidly spreading infestations um, recently. And that just shows you some of the map theories from the collector app showing the infestations on reserves. And this is what I was looking to. These are just some of the new species that we've had to start managing since the last year. Um, a lot of them I just would never have expected. You know, we just live with them and just say, oh, they're just a few plants here and there. It's not a big issue. But these are ones which have started moving and spreading. And I don't know why, in some cases, others are more clear. Called the tiger grass that's just on the border of the SCT, not far from the border now. Um, that's in the spread of Texas needle grass, another in the cellar, um, closely related to chilling needle grass, so that you can see how that would be a good match for our climate. Um, and Pagolic as well. But you know, some of them, like you know, Crotonia and the iris species, I mean, I just never thought we'd be dealing with those species here. Others um, are clearly, you know, bird spreads such as Chinese pistachio. Um, and as part of our approach to try and be more, I guess, on the front foot with all this, um, is uh, Jenny Connolly and I went to a talk um, from one of the wheat staff in Victoria Park, in Parks Victoria, Kate Love, and she was talking about how they're doing, they want to do an assessment of all the um, old heritage gardens in their national parks to make sure that there's not high risk of species in them. So we started the process um, here and we've discovered a number of species at some of the old tracking stations which we've started 
to remove. And unfortunately, in one case, a plant called Oregon grape, which is tuberous macrofolium, had already spread through the adjacent forest um, over a number of kilometres. So it's very timely that we are doing this work as well. And I think all this work will contribute to making these forest communities more uh, resilient um, when they come back from fire so that we don't have these um, plant invasions and the native plants have got a chance to regenerate. And it is, you can actually achieve things if you have the right resources and skilled um, people to do the work. Um, this is another one of our early invader species, which I did another one which 15 years ago. I remember I was at a talk and I asked someone at the coast that was managing fireweed, oh, do you think we'll ever have a Madagascan fireweed problem in the NCT? No, no, the advice is it's not a suitable climate. Well, it's the stuff flowers quite happily in a heavy frost, and I've seen pictures of it in the snow. So, a very adaptable plant. Um, Jenny Connolly's been working on a, a few sites in the ACT, and she's doing a swelling job, as you can see those figures. She's definitely got that site contained, plus um, the other two she's working on. But it requires a lot of work. So, Jenny goes to these sites every week. When she's on leave, I take over. Um, and it's methodical, persistent work, but you, you can achieve results. So our aim for that is local, local recognition. Well, so I've talked a bit about the early invaders. Um, now widespread established weeds. Um, I really think it's the invasive grasses that we have to watch most closely. Just because um, the quick response, the rapid spread, able to take advantage of resource availability when it appears quickly. They've got that, um, they've got a competitive advantage at germination that um, Alison alluded to, to the native grasses because they just germinate quickly and grow quickly. And that's why um, bush regenerators, land carriers, and rangers often have trouble re-establishing native grasses in areas that have been dominated by exotic grasses, particularly if there's been invasive grasses there. Um, and blackberry in particular is a concern for the mountains, because um, in areas where we've seen um, vegetation communities where they're at the edge of their range, where they might be a bit more open, or areas that are fire affected, um, you get major blackberry spread, and that's what we saw post-2003 fires. Parts of the beautiful Bendoro catchment herds, if you've been up there, blackberry only became a really big problem up there post-2003. As soon as you get that big disturbance from a large um, catastrophic fire, it takes advantage of losing. Um, oh yeah, that picture there, so that shows the challenge you face with our small remnant nature reserves. So it's a Yellowbox River Gum Woodland Nature Reserve, so listed community, so it's got high conservation value. The black areas are polygons of African lovegrass control. So where um, skilled contractors uh, have been employed to go in and get these spots sprayed in African lovegrass to stop it taking over the whole reserve basin. But that you know that sort of management is very intensive. And it's a threat that's right across um, this region in small native grassland and woodland remnants. 
So I went to a talk recently at the Academy of Science, and Dr. Chang Hennifer there presented this her slightly modified version of the what's called the passenger driver model uh, for invasive species, and it's the idea's been a model's been around for a while. Like it's a way of looking at things. Is this so-called weed species there because it's just a passenger of environmental change, or is it driving the change? And also, you can also, of course, have weed species that are backseat drivers. So they, they might arrive there because we've done something to create a lot of environmental change. But once they're there, they start taking over and taking the wheel and driving the change to suit them. So um, it's a very useful model, actually, to think through because you get to certain points well, why aren't I getting native plant regeneration after I do my weed control? The seed bank's wrecked. Or there's beneficial, um, there's no mutualist species missing. Um, so, you know, mycorrhizal fungi is not correct. Um, and then you get to the point where we've, we've a couple of seeds have spoken about today of what in the um, invasive species ecology is termed invasion or meltdown, where you just get cascading effects of invasive species. And the community is no longer no longer resembles either above ground or below ground what you had before. So no matter how hard you try to keep controlling the weeds, you just keep getting secondary weed invasions of you know, colonising weed species. Um, and that's where the concept comes in, where um, Professor Richard mentioned the idea of the novel ecosystem. Well, you just once you've controlled the major threat, the invasive species that's going to spread across your landscape, do you just accept that that area is just going to be a novel ecosystem, or do you invest money in trying to change the environmental conditions back to what they were, so you've got a hope of putting back some of the original species, or do you draw upon some of the research that's happening? I heard a couple of weeks ago that the New South Wales Herbarium is looking at the genetics of a whole range of native plant species to try and help in revegetation programs. And uh, the next speaker will be talking about the correct selection of our species for under climate change. So maybe you just accept, okay, we can't have the original reference community, that chance is gone. So we'll go for something that is feasible and at least it provides, it's a functional community and it provides some ecosystem services and it's, it's a stable community. So that, I guess that's, um, that's something we're going to decide more and more. We're going to be in that point, I feel. Um, and then up the top, your right, um, I really feel that um, we're going to have to make some hard decisions in pick areas where we're going to put a lot of resources in, in reducing both the area occupied and the density of some of the most high-risk invasive um, weeds. And it'll, it'll need quite a lot of resourcing, but I think it'll, we'll have to work out thresholds of control so that we know that you know, if, if a huge catastrophic fire comes through here and fire frequency increases, we know that we'll be able to cope with the exotic weed species response and be able to control it and not lose control of those species. And then, then we can create a native plant community that's resilient 
Um, and we might be able to do that everywhere because it will be a lot of resources to do that. But we have the ability, we know how to do that because we've had lots of successes in controlling um, invasive weeds over the years when the resourcing has been stable and all the right things have been done, minimising off-target damage, looking after the native seed bank, you know, doing the follow-up control, and so on. Um. And that's yes. How many minutes was that? So I was mentioned earlier some good weeds, good invasives. Um, would you like to talk about which might be good invasives for using? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I guess it depends on terminologies and stuff. I mean, there's already a lot of naturalised exotic species out there that we just accept, particularly herbaceous, um, and we just, you know, the hypocarous species, for instance, you know, the flatweeds are, even through really good native grassland remnants, they're usually present, even up in the mountains and the snow-covered lands, they're present. Oh. Um, so, there's already a lot of native, um, non-local native species and particularly exotic species that we use. We just, they're naturalised. The damage they do is minimal. They do perform a role um, and we accept them. When it, you have to do a bit of a risk assessment on this because there's certain species, for instance, let's pick one that um, I was just talking to Jeff Butler about, radiata pine in the mountain forest. So if you never controlled that, what would happen is it it rapidly does actually increase its density in the, in the uh, forest areas, um, particularly um, around the you know, areas around northern Namaji National Park, Greenville National Park. And you'd get to a point where next big wildfire came through, it would increase the intensity in, um, and rapidly bring that fire up into a ground fire. And we've shown that even after the O3 fires, you go, oh great, all the radiant pines have been killed because the the mature trees don't survive intense fire. The amount of germination you get of radiata pine is quite phenomenal. Um, so you clearly, if you end up with just radiata pine dominating the landscape, you're, the services you get from that landscape would be greatly diminished and soil erosion would increase and all sorts of cascading effects might occur and you might even end up with that invasional meltdown concept. Um, so clearly that's, that's one. Mexican fevergrass. Um, I've never quite seen a plant spread as rapidly as that anywhere. It's astounding. Um, luckily, it's a prohibitive import into Australia now, but online sales are an issue. People sell seeds through the internet and it seems to get past quarantine. So, to give you an idea, if you let a species like that go, um, it is predicted it would overrun serrated tussock and African lovegrass. And um, one of Jenny's control sites down in Gordon, the householder bought four plants from Bunnings, or Robins, I can't remember. And she bought them in the lead up to Christmas holidays, came back from a lovely stint of six weeks at the coast, and couldn't get in the front door because <laughs> there was so much seed that went right up the top of the door. That was lucky for us. 
what had happened was all the prevailing winds had blown all the seed in towards her house. Um, there were 350 plants in that space of time. Some had already gone to maturity and were already seeding themselves. And we removed all the seed, of course, topsoil of her garden and the mulch, and we're still controlling it at that site. Um, so clearly that one, you wouldn't leave. So you do have to do a risk assessment and make some hard decisions and hopefully the models you use for the risk assessment are robust. Otherwise you could be uh, paying a big price. So one more question. Following that, there does seem to be an argument for greater legislative controls over the sale of some of these plants. And um, I mean, I speak as one, well, not only control over the sales, but also greater fines for when they're on someone's property. And I say this as someone who's just been fined $200 for not controlling St John's Wharf. Advocate. Um, but I don't really want to get more fines myself, but I, I'm just wondering to what extent we should be using the stick to control this as against carrots. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Whatever, um, once we decide, you know, a species is a high-risk species um, and it's listed under legislation, then yes, it's part of the whole process of making um, our landscapes more resilient to be able to bounce back from disturbance. Um, we need to enforce the control. I mean, Mexican photographs, great case in point. Um, sales are slipping through through online sales. Um, but even then, you know, there's even been um, online sales into the ACT detected people just selling African monographs back to us. So that was an enterprising person with Danny Gordon. Um, so, very um, So, yeah, the need, we do need, and we need to target that um, and put, all, and again, like I said, we're choosing which species to put all the resources into. Um, you need to have your risk assessments done really well. And luckily, we do have access to some good ecological models through um, contact with the universities. But, um, Sometimes it's just sometimes it's just this problem of um, what one ecologist called recently in a journal article in um, uh, called plant plant blindness um, because it's easier for us to relate to animals. We can often see problems with animal, animals appearing quicker, um, but with um, weed species, not so it's sometimes hard to get even senior managers in government, in government and borough departments, treat issues with the um, seriousness they need because of this plant blindness approach. And one example, um, you know, alligator weed in our region is becoming an increasing problem. And you, all the risk assessments indicate it's a high risk. So the problem is when some people go and see a new infestation of alligator weed, they might not be much there initially. So their attitude is, oh, it's not a problem. We'll come back when it is. And that, and that attitude is, creeps into government and it creeps, creeps into decision-making with politicians and into, into 
But just on that, Steve, we did have in the ACT, at the beginning of all the weed work, we had an excellent system going where we had a community person and a government officer going around every nursery in the ACT. We actually signed them up almost contractually to not stop weed species. That has fallen totally away. Now, we've got to start back in the industry to get some of these things off the shelves. And the only way it's going to happen is the same sort of system. Mm. It's got to happen. Yeah. I mean, that's right. I mean, uh, I won't say anything more because I'll get myself in trouble. We need to move on from that. Um, and uh, uh, I'm sure there'll be uh, plenty of conversation over lunch. <laughs>